Hello and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, where we share the legacy of women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You'll get to know the faithful women who shaped our past and hear from inspiring women of faith today. I'm Carly Guyman. And I'm Shailen Back. We're your co-hosts. Today, we're excited to welcome Jennifer Reeder as our guest. Jenny, welcome back. We always love having you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And today we're really excited because we're going to be talking about Emma. Jenny recently authored a book called First, The Life and Faith of Emma Smith. And before we get into some of the questions that we have, we will give a brief introduction about Jenny. She is a 19th century women's history specialist in the church history department, and she has a PhD in American history from George Mason University and an MA in history, documentary editing, and archival management from New York University. With a BA in Humanities and English Teaching from BYU. She's originally from Provo, Utah, and served a mission to Catania, Italy. And she's co-edited two books, At the Pulpit, which we've talked so much about on this podcast, and also The Witness of Women, Firsthand Experiences and Testimonies from the Restoration. And we're just so excited to hear from your personal experiences as well as your expertise. So thanks again for being here with us. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. It's a privilege. And it feels so right to finally be dedicating an entire episode to Emma. Yeah. I think about the way we introduced the podcast, The Faithful Women Who Shaped Our Past. She was the first. Mm -hmm. She was such a vital part of the restoration, and it feels so right to be spending this time talking about her. It's a well-deserved time for a woman who is often misunderstood or misinterpreted. So I'm really excited to talk Mm -hmm. about her. Thanks, Jenny. We want to start just with you sharing with us the process of researching Emma's life. What led you to want to discover more about Emma and dive into this history? As I sort of mentioned before, Emma is often misinterpreted. The first time I read the Nauvoo Relief Society minutes, I had heard that Emma had serious problems with the practice of plural marriage. And so I read those Nauvoo Relief Society minutes with that undertone. And Mm -hmm. I could see, in my mind, where she was speaking against it sort of surreptitiously. And as we were writing the book at the pulpit, we knew that we had to include something from Emma. Mm -hmm. She was such an important foundational woman in the Restoration. And we were talking to then General Relief Society President Linda Burton, and I was expressing, I think, some of my concerns about how to understand and portray Emma. And President Burton looked at me and said, Emma was an elect lady, and I hope you always remember that. And it really surprised me. And it wasn't just the words that she said. It was the fact that as general president of the Relief Society, President Burton is also an elect lady. And she was telling me to look at Emma and understand Emma from that role. And I realized that I needed to open my mind and expand my vision and my definitions and my understanding of Emma. So that was really what started me off on this journey with Emma. So doing research on this book and on Emma in general was tricky. She did not leave a journal that we know of. Mm. She didn't leave a lot of her own personal writings. And so I mined every single letter that I could find that she had written to or received from her husband, Joseph Smith. I went to the archive and library of the Community of Christ Church, which was formerly the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And there I was able to read the correspondence that she kept with her adult children mm-hmm. and also with her second husband, Louis Bideman. And I learned so much about her. 
it was really important to me in doing this research to use as many primary sources as I could. So at the end, I was writing this book at home during COVID from my (laughs) home office. I didn't Mm -hmm. have access to all the books in my office at work, but I had access to the Joseph Smith papers online. And the Joseph Smith papers, I think, are what help us to best understand Emma, to see her not only from his words, but from the words of his clerks and other people, and to see where she was involved. So that's what I did. There's some problematic sources that are reminiscences of Emma, written as affidavits, claiming that Mm. they were wives of Joseph Smith or claiming memories or whatever. And those are helpful to some extent, but you have to recognize, and as a historian, I'm going to explain why this is so important, that those are written at a particular time and for a particular reason. They're not written in the moment of the actual happening in Nauvoo or wherever it was, but they're written much later. And memory— And for a purpose. Absolutely. Memory often shades that, and the contemporary need often shades that. So it's important for us to try to be as contemporary to the moment as possible. Yeah, that's great. And we so appreciate the work and the effort. We can't all individually comb through all of these letters. I guess we could, but this is your job. And so we're so grateful (laughs) that you did that and you found everything that you possibly could to help us better understand Emma, her role, her character is so wonderful. Another example of when we get Emma's words is from June of 1844. Before Joseph goes to Carthage, she asks him for a blessing. And he tells her, I don't have time to give you a blessing, but why don't you write down a blessing and I'll sign it? So interesting. And I love her words. I think they're so beautiful. She says, I desire the Spirit of God to know and understand myself, that I might be able to overcome whatever of tradition or nature that would not tend to my exaltation in the eternal worlds. I desire a fruitful, active mind that I may be able to comprehend the designs of God when revealed. She says also, I desire with all my heart to honor and respect my husband ever to live in his confidence by acting in unison with him. And she says at the end, finally, I desire that whatever may be my lot through life, I may be enabled to acknowledge the hand of God in all things. So there's a little bit of question about the provenance of that. The copy that we have in the church history library is typewritten, Hmm. which obviously is not the original. Long after. Yeah. Right. However, it comes from a collection belonging to Joseph Haywood. He was a man who Brigham Young had asked to stay in Nauvoo and try to finalize details in leaving the area and to also try to work with Emma. And he developed a really good relationship with her. So it would make sense that he would have a copy of it or the original. Now, Juanita Brooks, who was a great historian in the early 20th century, found that and she asserted that it was written in the hand of Emma Smith. Hmm. And so I trust it to be a legitimate source, source, even if we do have a typed copy of it. I love that it's so self-reflective. It really shows the desires of her heart. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's beautiful. I do too. And I think it's especially telling because she had a lot of time over the year or two before this of 
real introspection and trying to understand her own relationship with her husband. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a beautiful assertion of her commitment and her love for him. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's kind of a relationship with herself, kind of understanding herself, understanding Joseph, and also understanding God, and just really wanting to understand those relationships and strengthen those relationships. such a critical time. Yes. It calls for some kind of explanation or some kind of closure. Mm -hmm. It does. Well, something that really had an impact on Carly and me as we were reading the book was just the timeline of Emma's life. It was overwhelming to me seeing Emma's life events overlaid with the timeline of the restoration of the gospel. And of Joseph's life. And of Joseph's life. And for example, I just was thinking she was moving when she was pregnant with twins. She gave birth to twins. She lost the twins. She adopted twins. She lost one of those twins. And so even just that, seeing it so compacted, it's just so overwhelming and just gives a tiny insight into her life and what she went through all of those years. And it's one thing to look at the events in a list, but what would you say, Jenny, is important for the women of the church to understand about Emma's character? I think it's important to understand that Emma crossed a lot of frozen rivers and walked in a lot of mud and lived with a lot of other people before she had her own house. And she dealt with a lot of illness, and her house seemed to have a revolving open door. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to understand one of my favorite things about Emma is that she did the best that she could with what she had. Yes. She was extremely resourceful, but she was also extremely supportive of her husband. And she recognized his role as the prophet. And so she often was the host. I like to say the hostess with the mostess, right? (laughs) She could pull together a dinner at the last minute or throw a party at the last minute. And she loved doing it. She never expressed anger or frustration. She was in her natural role. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I think part of that she learned from her own mother. They had built a large home on the Susquehanna River in Harmony, Pennsylvania. And so a lot of people passed by. They boarded people in other buildings on their properties, and Emma learned to cook from her mother and sister, and she became the primary cook for the family and for these people that stayed with them. So I think she learned to host from her mother, and I love that. I love, too, what you shared about the things that she gained from her family and that then she brought to her relationship with Joseph their strengths. And we're going to talk more about that later, but that their strengths complemented each other. Like Shaylin said, we were both really impacted seeing this timeline of Emma's life. And I just come away with this heaviness. I cannot believe the things that this woman suffered. And Shaylin and I are both moms, and we just can't imagine it. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine, even as we talk again about the chronology, that she buried a toddler, and then her mother died, and then she became the president of the Relief Society, Mm -hmm. all within just a few months. So I would love for you to share, as you dove into these tragedies, these truly heartbreaking things that Emma endured, loss and suffering and illness, how was she able to do that? How was she able to process what she experienced and keep moving on, keep supporting her husband, keep engaging in the work of the restoration? Oh, that's a good question for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. How do we keep going when things keep happening? I think it's really interesting that when you look at the actual photograph of her, and these happen obviously later in her life when photography has and daguerreotypes have reached Nauvoo. So she's older and Joseph has passed away. But one thing I've always noticed about her photographs is that she has a droopy eye. Yeah, I wondered about that. And I really think that is indicative of the troubles that she's been through. Like the weariness. Right? You can almost see it on her face. 
And there's a story that one of her granddaughters asked her mother, why does grandma smile with her face but not with her eyes? Hmm. And I think she had been through so much devastation and sorrow and sadness and confusion and weariness, like you said, Carly, that you could see that. I think the thing, though, that kept her going were her covenants. I really do. I love looking at section 25, which was given revelation from the Lord to Emma pretty quickly after her baptism and before her confirmation. There was a period of great persecution, and so they weren't able to confirm her immediately after her baptism. But in that revelation, the Lord refers to her baptism and says that now you are my daughter. And he calls her by name, and he says that you will have part of my inheritance. And at the end of the section, he says, you will have a crown of righteousness as long as you lay aside the things of the world and cleave into your covenants. Later, when she received her patriarchal blessing from her father-in-law, Joseph Smith Sr., who was the patriarch at the time in Kirtland, she was given several promises that built upon section 25, that revelation. And then we know that she knew the Book of Mormon, and so she knew that it was not a doctrine of Jesus Christ for children or babies to be baptized in infancy. And she knew, learning from Joseph, that she would have her children— And she knew that with the temple endowment that she would have the gift of discernment and of understanding. She was very attuned to the Spirit and to the promises that she saw Joseph receive and she saw others receive. And she also received for herself and that she was not going to let those pass her by. That's another thing I love about her. She was very assertive in what she believed and what she'd been told. I love Section 25 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and I think it's so beautiful that it was written to her, for her, but then at the end it says, and this is my voice unto all. And I have just really connected with that and wondered how much strength that would have brought her her entire life. I have really always connected with that, and I think it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. It is beautiful, and I've thought a lot about the different verses in Section 25. So we know that she was a scribe, and we don't have the original copy of Section 25. The first copy we have is from the book of Revelation that John Whitmer wrote, copied into Revelation book one. And at that point, it was called commandment number 27. Hmm. So I wonder if Emma as scribe actually wrote the words as Joseph received them. And if she kept that original copy with her. For herself, yeah. Which I hope she did, because how beautiful is that? And Shaylin, you mentioned something about that last verse. That's a beautiful verse. And I think we learned so much from that verse that not only is that his voice unto all, but that he knows us all by name. Mm -hmm. We can all become his sons and daughters through our ordinance of baptism and our covenants, and that we can all receive his inheritance and come into his presence. You know, just a couple weeks ago, I read that again and thought of it in a different way. I wonder if the Lord is saying, this is my voice unto all of you, that you may understand Emma. And what a valid role she played in the restoration, that she is a valiant daughter. That's really amazing. I love that Mm -hmm. a lot. Jenny, something that also really, really struck me as I was reading these things that you'd studied and wrote was that Emma really played an absolutely vital role in the restoration. And something that's so beautiful is that Emma really was there with Joseph from the beginning. 
from everything we understand, was the right person that Heavenly Father wanted Joseph to have to translate the plates, to be part of this restoration. And I was really impressed with the partnership that they had. As I said earlier, that they really complemented each other and that that was pretty unique for the time, the things that she was involved in and contributed to. What can we learn from Emma and Joseph's partnership? I love their partnership. I think it's incredible. First of all, I think it's cool to notice that Emma was not Joseph. She did not see God the Father and Jesus Christ in the sacred grove. She did not hear the voice of the Lord that Joseph heard. And I think we need to recognize that. But she also had her own experience praying in a grove of trees when she was seven or eight years old, as she'd been taught to do in her Methodist Sunday school. So I think when Joseph told her about his experience praying in a grove of trees, that she was all the more open to that. But you're right, Carly. They had a very different background and childhood and experience. Joseph came from a very poor family that moved often from place to place and never had a successful Mm -hmm. farm. From failures. Many failures. Emma's father, on the other hand, was a very successful hunter, and he would also ship things down the Susquehanna River, and her brothers were successful. One of them was a constable. One of them was a tax collector. They were able to build a beautiful home. She was educated. She had cows and ran a dairy, Mm -hmm. so she knew how to run a business, where Joseph didn't have those experiences. And it's amazing to me the way that they were able to blend that together to, as you said, Carly, complement that. I really think Emma gave him confidence in learning about Scripture We have an account where she says that she had to teach him how to pronounce the name Sariah. Oh, interesting. And that he asked her, were there walls around Jerusalem? And she said yes. And Emma knew the Bible well. Right. But it was a complimentary thing. It wasn't, oh, I'm better than you are. I know more than you are. It was, let's work together and make this work. She believed it. At the end of her life in 1879, a few months before she died, in an interview with her sons, She proclaimed that she believed that Joseph was a prophet of God and that the work that he did with the Book of Mormon and with the church was a marvel and a wonder. I love those words because Mm -hmm. I think they sound just like some of those early sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, Mm -hmm. that a marvelous work and wonder is about to come forth. And I love that she says that after all they've been through and after all she's experienced, she says, no, this is true, and Mm -hmm. Joseph Smith was a prophet. Right. And she also says, I was an active participant, and I love that. Mm -hmm. And I think it is very different. If you look at Brigham Young and his relationship with his wife, his second wife in Nauvoo, his first wife had passed away, but his second wife in Nauvoo was Marianne Angel. And Marianne Angel was a very introverted woman. She never joined the Relief Society, whereas we have Emma, who is starting the Relief Society, establishing it, acting as president. Speaking up, speaking out. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if part of that was because of her natural personality. Sure. But also because Joseph had an incredibly progressive vision of the role of men and women for his time. He saw the eternal perspective of man and woman, an integral part of the House of Israel and the Abrahamic covenant, that they needed both. And that's the way he treated Emma, and that's the way that she saw herself because Mm -hmm. of that vision. It's very empowering. Yeah, but I think they worked off of each other, and they created this relationship where they could talk about things and work together. And if he was out of town, she could handle the business. 
and she could go get stuff for the store, and he entrusted her to care for and protect their children. So I think it was a really beautiful relationship. Well, and I love, too, that she was almost like the eyes and ears when he was away, like an informant of, we're suffering, we're struggling, we need help. And you write about in the book of a time when he's in Liberty Jail, she's saying, this is what we're experiencing, we need help. And that translates to be the words of the prayer, almost, that Joseph pleased to Heavenly Father, you know, our people are suffering, we need help. Right. And it's almost exact. The wording is so beautiful when you look at it side by side, from her letter to his revelation. So it really is beautiful. She was a spokesperson for the saints in many different ways. We've been talking a lot about this beautiful partnership that Emma and Joseph shared, and they do have a complicated aspect in their relationship when plural marriage was introduced. And we just really appreciated the straightforward way you wrote about how plural marriage was part of Emma's life. And this can be a really difficult topic for many members of the church to understand. And we'd just love to know from your perspective as a historian, and particularly after doing so much research about Emma, what do we know about and what can we learn from Emma's experience with plural marriage? I think that's a really important question. Mm -hmm. And that was something that sort of hung over me as I was doing this research and writing it about Emma, because it's been a question for myself. It's true. It's hard to understand also because there aren't many contemporary records. Joseph was told that this practice needed to be confidential mm -hmm. or secret or sacred. And people that did write about it would write about it in code. So it's kind of hard to put those pieces together. But I do know this. Emma was an integral part to Joseph's thought processes and developments of ideas and his sparks of revelation. And I really believe that this came from an understanding of the Abrahamic covenant and the house of Israel and how they, particularly he, but I think Emma just as much, wanted everybody to be a part of this great priesthood lineage and this house of Israel. Emma often welcomed orphans into her home and raised them as her own. She welcomed young women and people that she became friends with and that she looked after. And the thought of those people becoming a part of their family was a beautiful one. Mm -hmm. I think that the trouble arose when there was a lot of gossip going on because it was supposedly kept confidential pieces would come out here and there, as it would anywhere, mm -hmm. in any town, in any ward or congregation. Right. Yeah. And the idea of expanding intimate marital relations was really troubling for Emma, understandably oh, so. absolutely. Yeah. I think it was also troubling because she wasn't aware of some of these relationships. It's also hard to know how to define them, again, because there's a lack of sources and a lack of records. Joseph never used the term plural marriage or polygamy. Once or twice, he may have used the words spiritual wifery. But then John C. Bennett took that word and sort and of became really negative, ran amuck with it. Yeah. And he also doesn't use the word seal or adopt. So we don't know exactly what the terms were. So it was tricky. It was complicated. It was hard. And one thing that I love about Joseph and Emma is that they spend a lot of time talking. They hashed it out. They did. <laughs> as well as they could. This is interesting. Her brothers, when she was young, taught her how to ride horseback. And so she was an excellent horsewoman. 
And so oftentimes, because their home in Nauvoo particularly was so busy and full of people that either lived there or came to do business, whether that was church or municipal business or whatever, that often Joseph and Emma would ride horseback out into the country or ride in a carriage out into the country where they could have some private space to talk. And I really believe that they were able to work things out. I think that's evident in the blessing that she wrote. At the end of Joseph's life. Mm -hmm. At the end of Joseph's life. I think it's evident in the fact that she was pregnant when Joseph died. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also evident in an event at the end of her life right before her death. So a few days before she died, a nurse recorded a dream that she had. In the dream, Joseph came for her and took her to a beautiful mansion. Inside the mansion was a nursery, and there was a cradle with an infant in the cradle. And it was her son, Don Carlos, who had died in 1841 in Nauvoo at the age of 14 months. And she was so excited. She picked up her baby, and she held him, and she said, Joseph, what about the others? And he said, you'll have every single one of them. And then she turned, and behind her, she saw the Savior, Jesus Christ, which I think is so beautiful. Now, if you go back and think about Section 25, the very end, he tells her that she can come into his presence and that she can have a crown of righteousness. This is right before she dies. She has not come west with the saints and with Brigham Young. It's been decades. It's been decades. Mm -hmm. This is 1879. And yet, I believe this dream shows her redemption, that she has, in fact, cleaved to her covenants and that she has, in fact, been true to Joseph and to her children, and to her understanding of who God is. The last words that she uttered before she died were, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. And I think that that insinuates that he had come for her and that they continue to share this beautiful relationship despite its troubles and its feelings of betrayal or misunderstanding mm-hmm. or lack of communication, that they forgave each other and that they mm-hmm. loved each other so much. Jenny, you've shared you've spent so much time researching Emma's life and researching this in particular, how plural marriage affected her. How was this something that you came to understand better? And what would you say to people who are struggling with this part of our history? Well, first of all, I have to say it is a struggle. Mm -hmm. It is hard. I don't understand it. But you know what I've been able to do? And I think this is part of being a historian, but I think it's also part of being a person, is separating yourself from something that other people had to go through. It's not being asked of me right now. And I've read the incredible words of women that had to gain their own testimonies. Eliza Arsenault, Zina Young, Lucy Walker. They talk about how they were so uncomfortable with it. And as they prayed about it and really tried to open up to personal revelation, that they heard him, that they understood what their role was. And I respect that so much. I have a different role today. Yes. And we all do. We all have individual roles. I think the key here is to understand what President Nelson has taught us, that we have to hear him for ourselves, and we have to understand personal revelation. I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful that they got personal revelation. I'm grateful that I can receive personal revelation, that you, Carly, and you, Shaylin, can receive personal revelation. And it doesn't matter what other people do or say or believe or how they judge you. It is between you and the Lord. And I think that is what Emma was trying to seek for. 
I think members of the church don't often know all that much about Emma, her life, her contributions, but I think something that a lot of us do know and that we were taught was her role in compiling the first hymn book. But even as you wrote about this and talked about it, there was so much that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that it took so long and it required so much effort. I didn't know her background in religious music and how that had shaped her faith. So we would love for you to share more about her involvement in this cause that was literally given to her through Revelation by God. It was. In July of 1830, in section 25, she was told to select hymns for a hymnal. And I love this because I think the Lord is also teaching us who He is. He says, my soul delights in the song of the righteous. And I think that is so beautiful. I love that we have a Lord who has a soul who delights and who delights in music. Mm -hmm. And the song of the righteous, he says, it will be answered with a blessing upon their heads. And I actually think that's a beautiful explanation of the atonement of Jesus Christ, of becoming at one as we are worshiping or expressing our feelings and love and adoration and reverence for the Lord. He then immediately blesses us. And I think that's beautiful. Emma was known for her voice. She had a beautiful soprano voice. Mm -hmm. And they sung often as a child in the Methodist tradition. There were singing schools around in harmony. So it seems like it would have been a natural for her to collect hymns. However, this is not a thing that women do at this time. Right. They're always compiled by men. And so this is another example of how progressive the Lord is in terms of what women can do by social norms. But he knew Emma, and he knew that she was completely capable of doing that. So there are a couple of ways that she did that. Hymns were often printed in newspapers, so she may have immediately found some hymns, or she knew hymns. I'm sure she knew hymns that she loved that expressed her devotion for the Lord. They moved around quite a bit, so they were in Harmony, Pennsylvania, when she received this in July of 1830. They then moved to Fayette, New York, and then they moved to Kirtland. And at that time, she would send hymns to William W. Phelps, who ran the church's press in Independence, Missouri. We know that in 1833, that press was attacked by mobs and was ruined. And so gone was her collection of hymns. He had published some of them in the Evening in the Morning Star, a newspaper that was distributed among the saints. So that was lost. And I think that is indicative also of Emma's life. And I think it's all of us. You know, we put in a lot of effort to something and it gets lost. We lose something on our computers, <laughs> right? Or files get lost or whatever. But I think it illustrates the fact that she knew her hymns and she knew that the Lord wanted her to do this. So that was in 1833. In the fall of 1835, they were finishing up the construction of the Kirtland Temple. And Joseph met with the Kirtland City High Council. And they decided we need this hymn book published before the temple can be dedicated. And Joseph had even made sure that there were choir areas in the Kirtland Temple. So they printed the hymn book in Kirtland at a new press. And that book, it says it was printed in 1835, but it was actually probably put together in 1836, just in time for the dedication in March. And I think it's a significant hymn book. There are 90 hymns in that hymn book. They're collected from various faith traditions. 
So many of the early members of the church, well, all of them, really, when you think about it, come from a different faith tradition, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So there's Congregationalist hymns, there's a Unitarian hymn, Baptist hymns, Methodist hymns, and of course, hymns by Latter-day Saints. And I think it's an incredible collection in the sense that Emma is collecting hymns that, in her mind, define the theology of the church. Mm -hmm. And she has an active part in creating that and defining that theology. She has an active part in unifying the saints as they sang these hymns Mm -hmm. together. Such a unifying power. I think the main emphasis of these early hymns was building Zion. Because their plan was to build Zion. They had received revelation from the Lord that that would happen in Missouri. And they were so excited to be a part of this. And it was an incredible experience. I mean, think about singing the Spirit of God like a fire is burning at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. And we sing that at every temple dedication now. And that comes from Emma. And I don't know that we realize that, that the hymns that we sing in church, those come from Emma, that idea of worshiping together. I think it's beautiful, but it's also an opportunity to individually understand the power of hymns and to sing those in our hearts or in our silent chambers. By the time that they had arrived in Nauvoo after the persecutions of Missouri, there were so many new members of the church. And so Emma was going to create a new hymnal in 1841. But this hymnal was a little bit different. And it's interesting because you could look at these two hymnals and see how the process and the theology of the church had developed and changed over Mm -hmm. time according to their experiences. In this hymnal, they don't focus so much on Zion as an immediate location, but more as a future idea. And the focus is more on Jesus Christ and His atonement and His blood and His mercy and His grace. And it's so beautiful to see that. But to understand that Emma was behind that is an incredible thing. I love that. No, thank you for the reminder. And that was just a good reminder to me of the role of music in our worship and in the church, that it's foundational, you know, that music has always been a part of who we are as Latter-day Saints. You know, they made that first hymn book, and it was very similar to other hymn books of the time. There was no music printed. It was just the lyrics. And they would note the meters to which they could sing them, and they would sing them to different melodies or tunes. But it was such a small book that it could fit in your vest pocket. And so I think that meant we want you to carry these books with you. They're a little bit smaller than the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants. But we want you to carry these songs with you and to sing them. And I think it's kind of like our phones today. We have all of that on our phones, and we carry those in our pockets all the time. So I hope we take advantage of those opportunities, those times when we're feeling alone or when we need an extra boost of the Spirit and we need a blessing on our heads that we can call out and worship through those songs, whether we're singing them out loud or if that seems weird, just in your head. And you mentioned it. She was bringing together things that validated our theology and our beliefs. And so it's really neat that they are so doctrinal and that it's such a beautiful way to teach and to remember and to strengthen our testimonies. That was a really big job that she had, especially amid moving and the midst of all these tragedies and confusion. And it's oh, also do this gigantic task. And you anyway, know, it was, so I, it was a big job. And she bore and lost children mm-hmm. while she was doing that. But I kind of wonder if there was another purpose in that, and that was for her mm-hmm. and for her to be able to sing those songs to yeah, her they babies. Were probably a lot of strength and comfort. Right. 
and to know that there was something larger that mm-hmm. she was participating mm-hmm. in. Yeah, I like that thought. Obviously, we haven't even talked about that she was the founding president of the Relief Society. And again, this idea of she was so busy, there was so much going on in her life, and yet she was supposed to lead this organization that would provide relief and to the suffering. Mm-hmm. But you talk about how in providing relief that she found relief mm-hmm. and that that was the case with the Relief Society. That was probably the case as she was working through these hymns and, and then through the loss and then through moves, that that was also strengthening her and, again, giving her purpose in this process. Absolutely. There is something about being with a group of women as a woman where I feel like we understand each other on a slightly different level than when we're in a mixed congregation, which is also very great and awesome. But there's something about sharing that role that we have as women, as daughters of God, as mothers and sisters and grandmothers and aunts and friends and ministering sisters and all of that. There is something about collecting that spirit together and unifying together Joseph Smith said that the church was never fully organized until the women were organized. And years later, Eliza R. Snow talked about how whenever the priesthood was on the earth, so was the Relief Society, because it was such an important part of that, an important part of compassion and service. Um, Joseph said the Relief Society was to relieve the poor, but it was also to save souls. And I think of all the times when it's not just providing a meal or a casserole or a quilt. Those are really nice. But it's also lifting up the feeble knees and the despondent spirits and loving and understanding and receiving revelation for those to whom you minister. That is an amazing opportunity. And I really think that when we're relieving others, we are partnering with Jesus Christ because he is the master healer. He is. He is the reliever of burdens. And what an incredible opportunity. Mm-hmm. And bringing it back to Emma, I just think that is who she was. You've described she brought people in. She adopted twin babies whose mother died in child. You know, it was just yeah. like she was that kind of person. Mm-hmm. And of course, she was the first president. And I love that it's just who she is. Right. And it's amazing that we have her to look to in these patterns and when we try to serve. Something that's been on our minds lately is our ongoing role as women in the restoration of the gospel. And we would just love for you, Jenny, to summarize Emma's role in the restoration and then compare it to now our role today in the restoration of the gospel. I love that President Nelson has called this a continuing restoration. And so it doesn't just happen in 1820 or in 1830 or whenever, when the saints arrive in the Salt Lake Valley, 1847, but that is today. And we also play a significant part of that. Emma was a scribe. She knew the scriptures. President Spencer W. Kemble in 1979 called for us to be sister scriptorians. And President Nelson, just a few years ago, asked us to have a bedrock understanding of the gospel. And in so doing, we need to speak up and speak out, just Mm -hmm. like Emma did. And it's incredible to think about that responsibility and to think about the different ways in which we do that. One thing I love about Emma was that she was very resourceful. She was able to use what she had when the circumstance called for it. And I think that's something that we do now. Ministering has changed a little bit with the pandemic, and we have to be creative. Missionary work has changed with the pandemic. We have to be creative and think about the different things that we have. 
social media, whatever it takes to be able to be a part of Relief Society, even if it's on Zoom, mm -hmm. on our computer or phone screens in our own homes, we can still be a part of this incredible collective sisterhood. And I think that's exactly what Emma would have done and what she did and what she would want us to do. I think it is so important for us to realize that we do play a vital role, whether that's in our church callings or in our families, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in any way. And sometimes things don't turn out the way we think they should or the way the pattern is set. But you know what? That's okay because we can rework things. We can be flexible. We can walk through the mud a little bit. We can cross a frozen river. We can do anything that the Lord asks us to do because we know that He is with us and that we too can cleave unto our covenants and realize that it's going to be okay and that we can gather with the house of Israel. That's so inspiring. Thank you. Jenny, it's been so wonderful to have you here and to share more about Emma. We've learned so much in this process. Is there anything more that you'd want to share with women of the church or those listening to the podcast? Yes. There is a letter that Emma wrote to her son, Joseph III, in 1869. She told him, I have seen many, yes, very many trying scenes in my life in which I could not see any good in them. Neither could I see any place where good could grow out of them. But I feel a divine trust in God that all things shall work for good. I think Emma exemplifies this. And I also think that that is the case for each and every one of us, that if we trust in God, all things shall work for our good. Thank you. I just have come away from this conversation with so many things that I just appreciate about Emma and that I'm inspired by Emma. And I'm so grateful to know a lot more about her relationship with Joseph and her relationship with our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. And I love that you were able to share that with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I love talking about this stuff. It gives me a sense of purpose and passion in being a woman of the Restoration myself. Absolutely. Thanks, Jenny. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Latter-day Saint Women podcast. And if someone has come to mind who might benefit from this conversation today or who'd be interested in hearing from Jenny, we hope that you'll share this episode with them. As always, we invite you to continue to share your feedback and ideas. We read every review. We appreciate every rating. And we love hearing from you. So feel free to contact us at podcast at churchofjesuschrist.org with any suggestions or ideas. We also want to make sure our listeners know about the podcast and where it's available and just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. In addition to being on the church's website, it's also available on the Gospel Library app, Saints Channel mobile app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere. Tune in, subscribe, and continue to share these voices and stories of women of faith with your friends and family. We'd also like to thank our wonderful editor, Kurt Dahl, and our producer, Matthew Mangum, and the many others who support this podcast. Until next week, I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Carly Guyman. Thanks for listening. Thank you.